Good afternoon, and welcome to our book forum here at the Cato Institute today for A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption by Jay Cost. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. And I, would, again, would like to welcome you to this, uh, our event today for this very important book. Now, if you've been to book forums before, you will notice today our event will proceed in many ways the same as all other book forums have. That is, you will hear for some, from some participants, uh, and then there will be a question and answer session about 1 o'clock, and then lunch. Also, one other thing is, uh, like all of our other events, please turn off your cell phones now so that we can uh, have the event uh, both in peace and quiet. Uh, but some things are going to be different today. Um, we're trying some different uh, things, a different format. In this particular case, our author, Jay Cost, will speak for a while about the book to give you a general sense of the lay of the land. And then Jay will be joined by two of my colleagues, Mark Calabria and Chris Edwards. And they will, for a few minutes, uh, give you some impre their impressions of the book. And then Mark, uh, Jay, and Chris will have a conversation about uh, the spread of political corruption in America and the, our book, A Republic No More. So I'm going to begin today by doing, getting all the administrative stuff out of the way. I'm going to introduce everyone you'll be hearing from, and then we can go straight to our event. Jay Cost is an elections analyst, political historian, and pundit who writes for the Weekly Standard. Indeed, if you read the Weekly Standard regularly, you will know Jay's work very well. He previously wrote for the Horse Race blog at Real Clear Politics. Some of you may remember those days. And he had an earlier book, Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage corrupt the once noble, Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party and Now Threatens the American Republic. Cost received a BA in government from the University of Virginia, as well as an MA in political science from the University of Chicago. In 2005, while working on his dissertation at the University of Chicago, uh, Cost joined the staff of Real Clear Politics and then became a writer at the Weekly Standard in 2010. Although his education background is in political science, uh, Jay claims that he has come to rely more on his reading of the history of American elections than on political science and public opinion pro, uh, polling. Uh, our book today is the fruit of that interest in political history, which many of us would say has an important thing, important message for political science and indeed for American politics. My colleagues are Mark Calabria and Chris Edwards. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Before joining Cato in 2009, he spent six years as a member of the senior professional staff of the US Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. In that position, Mark handled issues related to housing, mortgage finance, economics, banking, and insurance for ranking member Richard Shelby. Prior to his service on Capitol Hill, Calabria served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at the US Department of Housing and Urban Development, and also held a variety of positions at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the National Association of Home Builders, the National Association of Realtors. 
He's also been a research associate with the U.S. Census Bureau's Center for Economic Studies. He holds a doctorate in economics from George Mason University. If you don't know the Cato staff very well today, when the conversation starts, Mark will be the one with the yellow tie on. The other fellow will be Chris Edwards. Chris is the director of tax policy studies at Cato and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. Before joining Cato, Edwards was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, a manager with Price Waterhouse Coopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Chris has testified to Congress on fiscal issues many times, and his articles on tax and budget policies have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and other major newspapers. I can say as Chris's colleague, you know, no one at Cato really rails against political corruption better than Chris Edwards, so he was a natural for, the, for our event today. And he, I must say in his research, he comes up with a lot of examples. Chris holds a BA and MA in economics, and he was a member of the Fiscal Future Commission of the National Academy of Sciences. Please join me in welcoming Jay Koss to the Cato Institute. Thank you, John, for that very kind introduction, and thanks as well to Mark and Chris for participating today. Um, and thank you to everybody who is here, and thanks especially to uh, the Cato Institute for hosting this forum. So as John said, we're here to talk about my new book, uh, Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. I was attracted to the idea of a history of political corruption because I like, I like the idea of writing a history of something that nobody studied in isolation before. It was a different subject. And uh, it's a subject maybe a lot of people don't particularly want to talk about because it doesn't paint the history of our nation in the, the brightest of lights. But I thought I would set sail on the grimy backwaters of American politics and see what I might find. And as it turned out, I discovered quite a bit. Uh, my book is one part history, one part civics, and one part policy analysis. And I was thinking about a way to uh, tie all of that together in these brief remarks. And, and since Mark is here, I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, which I analyze in the final chapter of the book. So I, I'm looking forward uh, to that because their behavior, to talking about Fannie and Freddie, because their behavior was probably the most obscene example of legal corruption that I discovered. So I'm going to take an opportunity at the end of these remarks to, to bring them into the picture. But, but first, let me just outline exactly what my argument is. I take a broader and more philosophical view of political corruption than what we typically read in newspapers or see on television, where usually it's a matter of extortion or bribery or kickbacks. Um, in, in my telling, those are all examples of corruption but I view the problem much more broadly, and my framework is a Madisonian one. James Madison opens Federalist Number 10 with a very evocative phrase, the need to break and control the violence of faction. If you read the Federalist Papers, you'll know that Hamilton is by far the better polemicist in those essays, but that phrase, violence of faction, still knocks me off my feet when I ponder it. And he de defines a faction thusly. Quote, a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, 
adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So that gives us, gives me at least, a very useful definition of corruption. It occurs when the government does violence to the public interest or individual rights by allowing factions to dominate public policy for their own ends. It's incompatible with a Republican form of government. And so its suppression, in my opinion, is at the very heart of Madison's project. After all, a republic, a true republic, must resist faction if it hopes to govern for the sake of all and with respect to the individual rights of all. Madison rejected the idea that virtue provided through civic education or public religion could overwhelm what he saw as the inevitable human tendency toward factionalism. It is, he said, sown into the very nature of man. He also rejected other thinkers who suggested that a small nation or a city-state would be ideal for a republic because in those instances, so the theory went, small groups are less likely to bicker over, over big issues. But Madison observed, and especially during the 1780s, the experience of the state government saw exactly the opposite. And indeed, in the Federalist Papers, he makes the persuasive claim, persuasive in my opinion, that even when men don't have something substantive to bicker over, they will find, invent reasons to fight one another. So as an alternative to, to this, Madison embraces an institutional solution. Because after all, if factionalism is sown into the very nature of man, and uh, popular rule is at the heart of the Republican project, there's a, there's a problem there. Republican government. Governance is inherently unstable. If virtue doesn't cut it, and if a small size of a city-state doesn't cut it, what do you do? Madison's solution, like I said, was institutional. He thought that so long as the institutions of government were well-designed, factionalism could be thwarted. And this idea, this principle, is at the very heart of our complicated system of checks and balances. It is an effort to build the institutions of government just so just so that the government works on behalf of everybody rather than a select few. Madison called that goal the great desideratum of government, another very evocative phrase. Woodrow Wilson once called our constitutional regime a Newtonian system, with forces carefully calibrated against one another. In other words, the rules of the constitutional game were to be structured so that the vast array of forces in society could combine within the, within the government to produce something that is in the common interest. That a faction may have representatives who will do its bidding in the government, but those agents will only possess limited power and will be regularly stymied by agents aligned with other factions. So through, per Madison's theory, it's irrelevant if those who check these selfish ambitions are themselves driven by selfish ambitions. All that matters is the result. The only proposals that should make it through the constitutional gauntlet and be enacted into law will be those that benefit the people generally. Everything else will fall by the wayside, thus offering a decisive check on corruption and preserving the Republican integrity of the regime. But to be truly Madisonian requires something other than strict adherence to the Constitution. It's not simply a commitment to, those, to that document. And the Constitution cannot be understood as holy writ. It is rather a compromise handed, hammered out at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, convened after the existing governmental authority had proved unworkable. The status quo at, the, at that time could no longer stand, but what to do next? Delegates disagreed on many points, and two important disputes are illustrative for my purposes. The first is how powerful should the new government be, and how dependent on local interests should it be? 
One group, led by Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, wanted a powerful government, mostly immune from parochial or local concerns. Apart from a popularly elected House of Representatives, Madison's original proposal envisioned a government distant from localities. The Senate was to be selected by the House, the President by both chambers of Congress, and the Congress would actually have veto authority over state legislation. Finally, a Council of Revision would have authority to monitor and veto state laws, or excuse me, veto federal laws. Meanwhile, the Congress would have enormously wide discretion. It could legislate in all, this is a quote, in all cases to which the separate states are incompetent or in which the harmony of the United States may be interrupted by the exercise of individual legislation. The Virginia plan was a truly national plan of government. Opponents rallied to a proposal from William Patterson of New Jersey, which called for slight alterations to the existing Articles of Confederation, with it, which had a limited power and parochial orientation. Under the New Jersey plan, the Continental Congress would acquire the power to tax, and an executive council would be created to provide direction to public policy. Now, the Constitution, as was finally worked out, occupies a middle ground between these views. After months of debate, delegates decided that the government should have more power than Patterson proposed, but less than what Madison proposed. And furthermore, it would depend more on local perspectives than Madison wanted, but less so than what Patterson envisioned. This was not merely a splitting of differences either. The framers sensibly blended divergent views, and you can appreciate this if you read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. You can, tell, you can see them taking care to make sure that this compromise actually worked, that the different various pieces fit together into a coherent whole. And it was a remarkable compromise for America of 1787. This was a people deeply skeptical of centralized power and fearful of creeping monarchism. Yet they were in desperate need of a central authority that could deal with urgent problems. The Constitution gave, them, gave the government enough power to meet the existing crises, but not so much as to overwhelm state and local authority. It also distanced the government from popular sentiment, but certainly not without cutting it off entirely. And over the ensuing two centuries and more, the American population grew from 4 million to over 300 million, and society changed, straining the original compromise and gradually forcing an effective revision of the governing charter. New problems emerged, and repeatedly the public decided that the power of the federal government had to grow to deal with new threats, and grow it did. Today, Washington, D.C. has achieved the scope of centralized power that was envisioned in the Virginia Plan. For all intents and purposes, the federal government can legislate whenever it sees fit. Rarely does the Supreme Court remind Washington of any constitutional limit. Yet, and this, this is where we turn to the problem of corruption, the country never substantially revised the institutions that channel government's ever-expanding powers. We have tinkered at the margins, tweaked the Electoral College after the election of 1800, mandated the direct election of senators, and of course, expanded the franchise. Nevertheless, for all of the growth in federal authority, the basic institutions remain largely as they were, when the Constitution went into effect in 1787. And from the Madisonian perspective, this is a problem. If our institutions require a particular design in order to break and control the violence of faction and serve the common good, then it is, it, <clears throat> then it is imprudent to give greatly expanded powers to institutions that were originally intended to do much less. 
But that is exactly what we have done. And we have done so in a decidedly ad hoc manner, even if the trajectory in the growth of government has always been upward. It has been a zig and a zag. As crises ar arise, voters elect a new governing class that expands power to deal with the challenge, and the expansion is re retained even after the danger has abated. This haphazard process has left us with institutions that are far too parochial and tied to factional interests to permit the wise exercise of this expansive authority. Perhaps not surprisingly, our 18th century institutions wield their 21st century powers corruptly. Lacking adequate checks and balances in this new redesigned regime, they regularly tilt public policy to benefit narrow interest groups. Madison called it the violence of faction. Sometimes conservatives call it cronyism. Liberals are wont to call it corporate welfare. I call it corruption. And this, I think, gets to the heart of Madisonianism. It is not blind faith in the Constitution. It is a commitment to the ideal of proper institutional design. It is a commitment to the principle that we must take institutions seriously. They must be well designed if a truly Republican regime will endure. And I do not think this country has been very Madisonian through its history. Put aside the debate of big government versus small government and think of it this way. If we expand the power of the government, will the existing institutions be capable of exercising their powers responsibly or will they need to be revised? That is the Madisonian question. And it is one that, in my search through history, I have rarely seen asked. So having outlined my theory, I briefly want to tie Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into this story, as I think it illustrates this point. For the sake of brevity, I'll assume that all of you are generally familiar with Fannie and Freddie. The bottom line is that they combined unsafe, unsound financial practices with an unprecedented lobbying operation to protect their investors and pad the bonuses of their executives. To hell with the credit risk was their motto. And for those who study the subject, Fannie and Freddie are government-sponsored entities, or GSEs. They're not part of the government. They are instrumentalities of the government. They are private corporations with public charters. And the substantive case of my book starts by discussing the corruption inherent to the first two GSEs, the first and second banks of the United States. The experience with the banks, the second bank in particular, is eerily similar to the experience of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Normally, when we think about the second bank of the United States, we're wont to think of Nicholas Biddle, who was a very far-sighted financier. And if we think beyond him, we tend to think of the bank war, where, in my opinion, Andrew Jackson comes across as much worse. Uh, but that's, that's as far as the common understanding usually, usually goes. But it, it overlooks something, which is that the bank had been in place for about a decade before Biddle came on board. And it was terribly run. Politicized and self-interested bank managers abused the public good out of ignorance, vanity, and venality. All the while, the government could do practically nothing about it until it was too late. And the reason why is that the bank was well-connected into the political system. Members of Congress were given advances on their salaries, for instance. They received campaign contributions. They got personal loans. This greasing of the skids may not have been as comprehensive then as it is in our age, but the skids were nevertheless greased. And as a consequence of this toxic brew, bad management and political influence peddling, the second bank harmed the country's economy in its early years. It did not cause the panic of 1819, but it reacted far too late to it, and then it overreacted. 
and because it was run by men who understood politics much better than they understood public finance. It seems to me, and I make this argument in the book, that history repeated itself a couple years ago. The same story that I just described with the second bank applies equally, if not more so, to Fannie and Freddie. Only the latter were better at politics, and the collapse of 2008 was much worse than the Panic of 1819. That history would repeat itself in this way just, just goes to show how little care and attention the political class, and by extension the people at large, have paid to the design of our governing institutions. Franklin Roosevelt was not aware of the Second Bank's troubled history when he created Fannie Mae. He just wanted to jumpstart the housing market. Lyndon Johnson was certainly ignorant of this history when he privatized Fannie Mae. His motivation there was to get Fannie's obligations off the federal books because the Vietnam War and the Great Society were ballooning the deficit. Similarly, Richard Nixon had no knowledge of history's lessons when he created Freddie Mac as a competitor to Fannie Mae. In this way, leaders were simply following the American people's demand to solve pressing problems without fussing over abstract concerns like whether our system could actually keep these entities in line. And this is an unfortunate pattern I have found throughout the process of research. For a country founded by men who were obsessed with how institutions could ensure a truly Republican result, the citizenry and the political class over generations have been decidedly disinterested in such questions. They hardly consider past institutional mistakes when designing new structures, hardly revisit core assumptions, even when those institutions appear to be functioning poorly, and almost unquestionably accept ad hoc structures whose providence is decidedly political. They, and people are too quick to blame personalities rather than institutional maladies when bad policy is produced. To put bluntly, it has been decidedly un-Madisonian, and the country has paid the price again and again in the form of political corruption, most recently from the damage caused by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Thank you very much. First, let me say how much I really enjoyed the book. Uh, obviously, some of the issues dealing with finance uh, are close to my own heart, having spent my time on the Hill uh, trying to work on financial issues. But also, as well, my dissertation work was actually on regulatory areas, areas during the Progressive Era. So I found that chapter to be uh, very much of interest. Let me also you know, make an emphasis. You know, the subtitle of the book is sort of the rise of big government. And I think it really is a book that's less about the size of government than about you know, the structure of government. Uh, you know, in fact, if you read this book and then immediately met, read, uh, you know, Marxist historian Gabriel Coco's, you know, uh, classic triumph of conservatism, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of differences in take on those errors. So I really would suggest that despite the big government, the title might be off-putting to some of my friends on the left, this really is a book that anybody at any point in the political spectrum, uh, you know, I think would enjoy. Uh, I think it's a great introduction to the history. Uh, you know, some of my critiques would be that, um, and again, this is going to reflect my bias as an economist, there's a whole literature uh, in economics, uh, some of it on corruption, some of it on constitutional design, uh, that's not there, but again, this is a political science history book, um, despite my own temptations that every single book everywhere should contain a little economics. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm only going to have that as a small uh, a slight to it. Um, but to me, again, some of the conversations, particularly uh, about some of the bank war, the U.S. bank, I'll say uh, my friend Alex Pollock over at AEI a number of years ago wrote a very wonderful little essay comparing Fannie and Freddie uh, to the uh, first and second Bank of the United States. And so to me, it's always a sort of wonderful parallel with some of the same you know, problems that were there. So found this a great introduction. Um, to me, I was a little bit frustrated in terms of, well, you know, can we really have some fixes here? Uh, I probably did not, I guess I put it this way, if, if you're looking for a laundry list of, you know, how we can fix all this and, and go back in time and deal with it all, you will probably a little bit disappointed. Um, but again, it's a great read of history. It's a great uh, set of examples. Uh, and I think the, the thesis is very clearly let out. And uh, again, I, I really enjoyed it. Look forward to the next book, too. Uh, so I'll turn it over to Chris for a little while. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, Jay. It, was a, it, was a, it's, it is a fantastic book. You're clearly a historian uh, uh, by heart. The, the, uh, the, the detail is tremendous. If you want a, a good introduction to American 19th century uh, public policy, this is a great book to start with. Uh, your discussion of the rise of uh, you know, the patronage in the 19th century, the rise of the parties, the rise of the progressive movement, the New Deal, fantastic. Uh, Jay has uh, chapters in here on farm subsidies and on Medicare. Tremendous introduction. Each of those chapters could be a separate Cato, Cato standalone study on those, those two uh, issues. So he does a really tremendous job with the history. I have three sort of main sort of critiques, I think. I mean, the first is that, um, in my view, big governments uh, get dumb and corrupt and wasteful, uh, whatever their basic structure. So, for example, with farm subsidies, which Jay has a chapter on, uh, are, are a terrible policy. They're distortionary. Uh, they're unfair. But you know, every major uh, Western country uh, has uh, big distortionary farm subsidy programs. Uh, governments with all types of different systems: British parliamentary systems as well as the uh, American constitutional system. So, so the problem with farm subsidies is, is uh, and this is sort of what I think, and maybe Mark was touching on, that Jay gives us a, uh, a, a sort of a critique, a special interest critique of government. I think what he leaves out is the central planning critique of government, and, and maybe that, that's a separate book. But, you know, the problem with farm subsidies is not so much the special interest problem, in my view. It's a central planning problem. Farm subsidies will never work. They're always distortionary, no matter what the structure of government and the same with his chapter on Medicare, which is really a tremendous chapter. If you want a good introduction to some of the distortions in the Medicare system, uh, Jay's book is a good place to go. But the problem with Medicare is not the, the special interest handouts. There is special interest handouts. There's, there's unfairness and there's loopholes and that sort of stuff. But it's the central planning problem. Medicare is a Soviet-style uh, central planning, price control system. Medicare has thousands of prices on provider uh, that, that are imposed on providers and, and doctors that ca cause a tremendous amount of distortion. Uh, but you see the same sorts of distortions in, in other sorts of uh, uh, government systems in other, other countries. So uh, Jay, Jay ignores, I think, or he leaves out of this book, um, the, the basic Adam Smith or Frederick Hayek uh, critique. Adam Smith uh, complained about uh, what he called the men of system, uh, the, the people who get in, in, in government and think that they can sort of centrally plan uh, the economy as if the economy or as if society was like a chessboard that the government can manipulate. Um, that is the problem with big government. So I don't think, I think Jay's critique is that, you know, if the, the, the um, Hamiltonian uh, 
uh, or Henry Clay kind of big government system uh, perhaps could have worked if if uh, if Washington had, if we had changed the institutions in Washington over the decades. I don't think that's right. I mean, I think that big government fails uh, because it tries to centrally uh, plan. A second point, and maybe this is more, uh, I thought it was very interesting, maybe more a bit of an agreement with Jay, uh, is that, you know, the Madisonian view of checks and balances uh, and that, you know, factions in the extended republic would balance each other uh, to, the, to the broader uh, public good. Madison, apparently, and Jay can correct me if I'm wrong, didn't see the, the rise of log rolling. Log rolling is a central and crucial problem uh, in, in uh, government, and Jay goes into this in some detail, you know, back in the 19th century, uh, log rolling was a huge problem with various uh, uh, programs. I think it's discussion of Woodrow Wilson, who observed that one of the big problems with the decentralized power structure in Washington was that no one knew who was responsible or for failed government policies. It's a huge and central problem, I think, right now. And you can actually see the, the difference in countries I think with, uh, the, in the United States, with countries with a British parliamentary system like Canada and Britain, where, where governments uh, come into power and they essentially have short-term dictatorships, everyone knows who uh, is, is at fault for failed government programs. In the United States, it's much more difficult. And so that political accountability uh, is, is, uh, is something that is a real problem in the American system. Woodrow Wilson was a terrible president in just about every other way, but I think his, his, uh, his observations about responsibility are, are, are bang on, which Jay goes into. A final point, and this is maybe a point of uh, some disagreement with, with Jay, is that uh, you know, the, the election of 1800 when Thomas Jefferson came to power was a landmark in American history, uh, throwing out the Federalists. Uh, Jefferson had promised a smaller government, a repeal of all internal taxation, spending cuts, balanced budgets, all the type of stuff we like uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, Jay argues that uh, the Jeffersonians were pretty quickly overwhelmed by Federalist ideas, and they essentially just became Federalists in subsequent years and decades. I, I think that's a little off. I, I, I think that a, a number of the Jeffersonian uh, uh, ideas actually had uh, uh, real uh, sustained uh, power uh, in American public policy. Jefferson, for example, uh, did in fact follow through and, and repeal internal taxes. That policy uh, uh, held until the Civil War. Uh, the, the Jefferson, um, Jefferson hated debt. Him and his Treasury Secretary Gallatin, they hated debt, and they and they 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 promised they would cut it. They did cut it, and that policy, uh, the the hatred of debt, the favor of balanced budgets, lasted all the way through, really, to the New Deal, uh, with the exception of of of, of wars. So. There is something here that, uh, you know, culture plays a role here, too. Uh, the, the idea that we ought to have balanced budgets, we ought to pay down debt, it was an idea that there was no, the institutional structure of the government didn't guarantee balanced budgets, but we generally balanced budgets all the way from 1800 through to the New Deal. I've actually calculated we balanced the budgets about 70% of those uh, years, which is a pretty impressive record. So. Uh, I think, uh, again, a generally excellent book, I, I, I think one thing that's left out is sort of, you know, the, the, the culture of our governing institutions, uh, which is a bit of a different issue than the, the, the institutional structure. Yeah, maybe Jay would be useful to kind of, um, to me, you take a very specific definition um, of corruption in, in, in the book. Uh, and certainly, you know, I guess I put it as you ask, five different people what they mean by corruption, you're gonna get six different answers. Right. 
Uh, and so certainly there's definitions in the economic literature, there's certainly definitions in the, in the, on the policy literature. So I think it'd be helpful before we really get into the conversation if you could sort of lay out a very specific, you know, what exactly are you defining as corruption right. in the book? That's a, that's a really good question. And it, it was actually something that I struggled with um, when I was writing the book because of course you can win any argument depending on how you define your terms, right? So the question then became, well, where, where should I plant my flag, right? What's my foundational premise? And I just have to, it just has to be the premise. And, and I, I decided um, that, that Madison is, at least as I read him, and I, I think I, I've read him reasonably, um, I think Mad, Madison, uh, his definition of factionalism or the violence of faction. And I, I chose that um, because, well, well, for a couple reasons. The first one is that I think it illustrates um, pervasive problems that are often overlooked with too narrow a definition. But I also chose it because I've really, um, you know, my read of history, I've, I've been really struck by the struggles of the 1780s, leading up to the Constitutional Convention, leading up to the document that was produced. What were men like Hamilton and Washington and Madison so worried about? And they were, they were very worried. Um, and they were worried about factionalism, and they and I think that it's not unreasonable to 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 use that as a definition because uh, I look at the behavior of a lot of the state governments in the 1780s, and I see an awful lot of corruption. So that's sort of how I came about that. It's certainly worth um, observing that a, a lot of that corruption was um, maybe what we'd all commonly think of corruption as uh, public officials and their friends lining their pockets. Uh, I guess you could certainly say the smallest uh, faction is a faction of one, so right. we certainly saw a lot of that. But I, but I think that that's very helpful because to me the book is really kind of about um, these concentrated you know groups essentially t you know taking uh, advantage of the uh, government for their own benefit at the at the public expense. Right. I, I think it is. Uh, you know, I think Jay sort of you know, I can tell you struggled a bit with with the idea of what is. Uh, you know, private interest versus public interest. We all want public policy right. in the broad general public interest, um, but and people on every end of the political spectrum will say they that's what they want. But you know, what does what does that mean? I mean, so I, I'm writing an essay now on why the federal government fails, and there's a similar problem that what is the, the definition of failure is when the, the federal government doesn't do something in the broad general public interest. But, the, you know, no one, it, it's hard to, you know, special interests like the one Mark used to work for in the housing uh, industry would argue that, that what they're uh, proposing that, that, that is in the general public interest, that the mortgage interest deduction is in the general public interest. And it is hard to get a, to, to, to get a really good, a hard definition of, uh, of, of how these special interests uh, undermine the general welfare. It, it is. In fact, I mean, that reminds me in, in the introduction or chapter one, I don't remember where, but I recount, and, and it was Jefferson's telling, but um, which maybe m might make it of dubious um, accuracy, but it was, for his, it was for his personal records. It was his personal notes. He recounted a conversation that he had with John Adams and Hamilton about the British Const Constitution. Adams said that it would be the most perfect constitution if, if, if it only was purged of its corruption and given an equality of representation. And Hamilton said, purge it of its corruption and it will become a useless institution. As it stands, it is the most perfect, perfect government ever created. And he, Jefferson, of course, was appalled by this, but Hamilton was, and this speaks to the question of what is the public good, right? Hamilton 
thought that what is the problem if the king has to bribe small-minded, venal members of parliament to do what they should do anyway? And, and, and we've seen that at times throughout our history. For instance, Lincoln had to dispense patronage to a congressman from New Jersey to get the 13th Amendment passed. So it's, and the response, you know, as I, when I read that, I was, you know, that was very striking. And you know, one reaction would be, thank God he had available patronage. <laughs> um, but at the same time, though, it's a, it's a difficult, it's, it's a difficult, um, seemingly difficult to define the public interest at times. But it's sort of, you know, the way Justice Potter Stewart just described pornography. You know it when you see it. You know, we can talk about the, the difficulty of the public good in the abstract. But then you start calculating the dead weight loss inherent to farm subsidies since the New Deal, and you look at where the farm subsidies are going, and there's, there's no question. Um, and similarly, you look at the patronage regime by the end of the 19th century. I mean, you could make an argument early on. Jackson and Jefferson, to a lesser extent, were trying to hold their political coalitions together, which is necessary to implement any sort of public program. But you look, for instance, at the way the port of, uh, the port of New York City functioned by the end of the 19th century. It was disastrous. And it, it was harmful to the national interest. And when you read the stories and see exactly what was going on, there's really not a lot of doubt. So I think that that concept of the public interest is, from certain perspectives, is often very hazy and, of course, informs a lot of our public debate. But then there are these issues where the, the split is really 95 to 5, and that's sort of what I try to look at in the book. It's something that perhaps you can elaborate on and uh, is, is the whole log rolling issue. Was I right that Madison uh, missed the log rolling problem? He had, you know, he had a well-designed system. He'd read about the constitutions of many other uh, states at the time. But it does seem to me that you know, almost as soon as uh, that the ink was signed on the Constitution, the log rolling started. Yeah. They very, you, you go into detail about how starting in, I guess, 1826, they started passing big uh, uh, harbor uh, Army Corps of Engineer project bills where they, where they initially they started passing these uh, uh, Army Corps of Engineer projects uh, singly, and a lot of them failed in the legislature, but then they got the great idea of bundling a few hundred of them together, putting them in a big uh, omnibus, and it was called omnibus at the time, and, and that was the beginning. Then they realized they could do that with post offices and all kinds of other stuff. You bundle everything together, and a bunch of really uh, bad projects would pass in a big bill. Yeah, that's right. Um, that that is something I don't get into in in the book, um, but you know because you have to select your stories and you know certain things get left on the cutting room floor. But you're you're right, Madison. I don't remember what the particular issue was in his day. I think it might have had to do with internal taxation, but I'm not sure. But he was in the I think the first or second Congress was very disturbed by what by what he saw. And of course, um, you know by the 1820s, which is just a generation into the new government. I mean, not only do you get rivers and harbors legislation, the pork barrel there, but then you also and by the way, I mean rivers and harbors. You don't think it's a big deal nowadays, but if you you think about the country in the 1820s, it was hugely important. Uh, and then on top of that, you get the tariff of abominations as well, which I think was 1827, 28, I think, which was a, basically a log roll between New England and, and the mid-Atlantic states at the, expense of, uh, at the expense of the South, and ultimately precipitated the nullification crisis. So that, that was something he definitely missed. And of course, today, log rolls on the, and then I talk about this in the second half of the book, um, is that log rolls today usually don't exist on the commit on the on the house floor or the or the legislative floor? I mean, they, they certainly happen, but usually uh, the the committees are much better for securing uh, what political scientists have called gains from trade, 
right? You, you, you hand uh, discretionary power over the process to committees, and then people who want pork from, say, defense or technology, they, they gravitate to whatever committee has particular control over it. Uh, so, but that, that was not formed yet in Madison's day, and that's why you get things like rivers and harbors. I mean, that's just as a former committee staffer, I certainly saw way too much of that, you know, up front. But I do want to go back to the, what I think is this kind of interesting issue, as you, as you allude to, Hamilton almost sort of suggesting that there's good corruption. Uh, and I'll use some of the examples that I saw on a regular basis on the Hill. So, for instance, and Chris has written, uh, you know, on the very large grants and subsidies we give the states and localities. Uh, and so, as you could imagine, these states and localities, they want the check without actual any federal strings. So one of the things that I was on the receiving on a regular basis on the Hill was some senator's office coming and saying, well, we'd like the money, but we don't actually, can you exempt us from, from this you know, requirement? And of course, my usual answer was, I'm happy to have a conversation with you about exempting everybody or nobody, right. but not you. Um, Ian, the, the shocky thing was I was the only one who ever took that position. <laughs> uh, I never had anybody argue with me on principle. They were like, yeah, yeah, you're right, but we got to get this bill done. There's the greater good of the expediency, you know, and let's move this forward. And of course, you know, whether it's the mortgage finance stuff, the housing stuff I've worked on, or whether it's other areas of public assistance, you do often hear this argument, if not explicit, implicit, that, well, if you don't let the special interest, the providers, you know, take some portion of the subsidy, then nobody will lobby for the subsidy, and we won't have these great and good things, and poor people will die in the streets. Right. And so I'm going to put it back to you and say, um, other than kind of the outrage of, you know, the Cornhusker carve-outs and things like that, um, you know, where is in your evidence and view that on net... Um, the, the, these offsets, these carve-outs, these corrupt deals um, outweigh the greater good of these individual, right. the, the, the package, that's, if you will. That's a good question. Uh, well, Barbara Conable, who was a ranking member for years on Ways and Means, called what you described as the ABC syndrome, right? Uh, somebody, they're writing the tax policy on Ways and Means, and A comes in and says, what, the policy you've got is great, but I need an exemption. So he gets his exemption, and then a year later, B comes in and says, the exemption you gave A was perfect and wonderful, but you see, it's affected me in this way, so I need an exemption. And then a year later, C comes in and says the same thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's ultimately the question of whether or not, you know, um, it was Hamilton Wright or all these deals, the grimy necessity of managing managing a, a, a political economy as vast as ours. And I, I, I mean, I, the argument that I make in the book, and I, I, sort, of, I sort of go through and I kind of rank the chapters one after another in the second half. I look at farm subsidies, and then I, I, look, at, um, I look at the pork barrel, and then I look at Medicare and corporate taxes, and then Fannie Mae. And I think on all five of those areas, I think the benefits are clearly uh, outweighed by the costs. And I think that the, ex the waste... I sort of roughly, it was sort of a spitball because you can't get precise estimates on these things, but I sort, of, I sort of ranked the chapter. So the farther in the book you go, the more wasteful and pernicious the effects of the policy are. And so by the time you get to, you know, um, you know financial regulatory reform and you see what they were, at, or reg regulation, and you see regulatory capture actually happening, I mean, it's overwhelming, um, the indication that this was not that this was not managing the venal and fractious for the sake of the greater good, that that somehow failed. And I think you see it in the, the especially 
in, in, in the two prior chapters on, on corporate taxes and, and Medicare. Um, and you know, in 20 years, if I were to write this book, Medicare would be the last chapter in the book by a long shot because the waste inherent to Medicare is going to become more problematic by an order of magnitude as the baby boomers retire and this inefficient system that privileges, you know, the privileges waste and payoffs is, is going to become more expensive. You know, uh, I've often said that if you start from the premise of thinking that financial regulation is actually about stability or safety and soundness, then you'll never actually understand the financial <laughs> regulatory system we have. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me, a commonality among much of this, whether it's Fannie or Freddie or even whether it's Medicare and, and you know, many of the even ag subsidies like crop insurance, they're all kind of hidden yes. subsidies. I mean, Chris works on budget issues a lot. And sure, there's lots of stuff that, that really, you know, outrage you about what's on budget. Um, it seems to me that some of the worst of these are you know, what we economists would call contingent liabilities, but they're essentially hidden. So let me ask you, um, you know, is it the corruption particularly worse when there's an element of budgetary secrecy to it? I would say so. Um, I, I would say that there is. And the extent to which they're hidden is really extraordinary. You know, I... Um I was, uh, you know, I mean, I remember when everybody kept telling me that, you know, GSEs never fail, these things make money, right. you know, I mean, we were all told these things are going to be great profits, right. and of course, I'm sure that's true of many of the other programs. Well, you know, in the, in the case of Fannie and Freddie, I mean, the, one of the problems there was they weren't keeping honest books, so, you know, there was no discovery. Um, but I, I'll give you an example of just how difficult a lot of these issues get, right, is that, um, you know, in... Tom Cotton, who, of course, is a new, new senator from Arkansas, um, voted la uh, last year against the Farm Bill. Uh, and he was the only member of the Arkansas delegation to do so. And early in the year, Charlie Cook, who is an old political hand and a, a very, insightful, very insightful guy, uh, wrote a column criticizing Cotton for doing that and saying, well, this is, this is, this is not smart politics. This is ideology trumping common sense Arkansas values. And then Toward the end of the cycle, Chuck Todd, um, who again, very, very plugged in, very connected, very smart guy, made the same point. And I mean, and I took to the, the, the electronic pages of the Weekly Standard and, and excoriated them for it. I mean, in good humor, but <clears throat> you have to be kidding me. You know, the percentage of Arkansans who actually draw benefit from this farm bill are, is vanishingly small. And moreover, the entire Kansas delegation voted <clears throat> against the farm bill. I think Tom's going to be okay. Um, but the point, though, is that people who make draw a living and uh, in, in who do a good job of understanding politics, you know, I don't want to single those two out because I think on balance they're both smart, sharp analysts. But I, I, I mention that simply to point out the extent of the obscurity that the, the reality of the Farm Bill is something. And by the way, the Farm Bill has been around for 80 years. It's not like it's a new policy. Well, you know, Chris mentioned, and I'll turn it right back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chris mentioned culture, and I think this is incredibly important. I can say from my time on the Hill, and I think that, that, that Charlie Cook and others reflect this Washington mentality that the way you get reelected is bringing goodies home to right. your constituents rather than actually standing for something. And so that, and I can tell you, being on the Capitol Hill, that viewpoint is pervasive, and members have sort of internalized that. On farm subsidies, an interesting uh, uh, aspect with respect to transparency is that you know the Republican Congress in 1996 did a big farm reform bill, uh, Freedom to Farm bill, uh, that made a lot of the, the most of the federal subsidies a lot more transparent, and that's why there was a decade or more of embarrassing stories about how folks like Ted Turner were massive collectors of farm subsidies. Um, 
and uh, in the recent farm bill that passed, I guess, last year, uh, the, you know, c- Congress, the, the farm porkers realized, man, this is a big problem. We're getting a lot, not a lot of negative publicity. They ended that direct farm subsidy program, and they switched to uh, insurance subsidies, passing tens of billions of dollars to the farmers through insurance, uh, through pr- private insurance companies. And so it's essentially laundered money, and, and that has made uh, the recipients uh, of all these, uh, the farm pork uh, more invisible. So uh, Congress doesn't like transparency, and they, and they, and they work against it. An interesting point, I think, about, uh, you know, the special interest is sometimes it almost seems, um, uh, I I don't see how we could have avoided it in American history, and I'll I'll give you a few examples. Um, You go into great detail about uh, land in the 19th century. The federal government accumulated this vast amount of land through the Louisiana Purchase and other uh, other big chunks of land uh, given to it, given, uh, it, it grabbed, really. Uh, it had to get rid of it somehow, and the general policy for a century was to get rid of it. And so a lot of it, for example, went to the railroad companies in, in return for promising to build land lines. And there was a lot of corruption associated with that. Yeah. But I don't know how we could have ever got around that because, you know, I think it's a good thing the federal government, you know, it, it got rid of the land. I, would, I don't want the, you know, a big federal government with big land, so it had to get rid of it. Uh, another example of you going go into detail about Indian treaties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the relationship between the federal government and uh, Indian tribes uh, was generally awful right up until the 1970s. Uh, during the 19th century, you know, the uh, federal government wrote treaty after treaty with Indian tribes and broke them again and again and again. But, you know, and, and so one, from one perspective, there was a special interest problem. White settlers were moving west and then lobbying their representatives to, uh, to break treaties uh, but, uh, you know, it, which was bad and it's horrible when you look at it now, but I don't see how else, how we could have avoided that. I mean, there's just millions of settlers just pushing out over the Appalachians and, uh, and squatting on Indian land. I don't know how we could have avoided it. And a final example of that is with a corporate income tax. Uh, I differ with you somewhat on, um, the, the, uh, how and why the corporate income tax is, is so complicated and corrupt as it is, but, the basic problem with the corporate income tax, in my view, is that the, the basic structure of it, trying to tax this complica- complex thing called income, sets the government up for failure and corruption. The corporate income tax, its fundamental structure is so complicated that it's easy for corporations to go to Washington and lobby to say, look, this tax is unfair to me because of this and this and this. So it's we're trying to tax... Um, uh, something that is very complicated in the economy, this thing called corporate income. And because of that, there's no good, uh, sound sort of uh, neutral basis for it. And so, and so you, you, it's an opening to, to corruption. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, that gets back to your uh, initial um, re- response to the book. And, and this, is a, this is a good opportunity for me to, um, to respond to that. And I, I think... You know, the, to the question of, sort, for instance, something like farm subsidies. Is this just a fundamentally misguided policy that will always produce pernicious, perverse effects that would accurately be labeled corruption? Um, I'm not an economist. I can't answer that. Um, I, uh, I, my, for what it's worth, I think that the answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> And I, but I, I didn't deal with that in this this book and the sort of the merits of the policies as policies. Um, what I wanted to do was sort of 
Uh, because I, I think what happens is, is that malfunctioning policies always seem to malfunction. To me, they always seem to malfunction in the same way, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book as a history, because I see commonality between, for instance, the, 19th, the, the problems with the tariff regime of the 19th century and the problems with the... Um, the corporate tax regime today. You know, I mean, I've read arguments I, that I found persuasive that by the end of the 19th century, we didn't need such heavy protective tariffs and that this was a misguided policy. And, you know, what, and the same about, like, to your point about corporate taxes and what, you know, my book is what I'm trying to emphasize is putting aside the merits of the policies themselves. And just not to say that I don't have opinions on them or to say that I'm, I'm neutral on them. I, I write for the Weekly Standard, so it's not a hard bet where I come down on most of these policies. But that when they, when they malfunction and they don't work, it always there, there, there seem to be these commonalities to it. And it, I think it, like I said, I think as I noted in my remarks, I think it, it gets back to the structure of the government. I think that's a good point. I mean, you could look at it as either a feature or a bug. I know that, you know, I felt like at points of the book, and it might sound surprising from the title, I felt at points of the book you were too easy, too easy on some government programs. Uh, but that said, I do think that that's a balance toward, you know, there, this isn't really a discussion of the merits of the various programs that are listed. It really is a discussion of the, of the function of them. Um, let me raise what I think is kind of to me an interesting issue in some of the cases, particularly both with the sort of U.S. Bank or the Bank of the United States, you know, Ian, um, Fannie and Freddie, and I want to go back to, uh, there's uh, an economic historian at University of Maryland, John Joseph Wallace, who's written a whole lot on corruption, particularly at the state level in the 1800s. And you touch on this a little bit in the book, particularly in New York, and I'll say as an aside, if you read any of that literature and you think the federal government was bad, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, you, especially in this era of Greek defaults, and you know, we remember during the 18, you know, 20s, 30s, and 40s were all of these state-level defaults. And so one of the things that, that Professor Wallace identifies in his work is sort of entry barriers. And so to me, one of, you know, whatever you think about Fannie Fran, I'll say as an aside, you know, for those, there are lots of arguments about their financial crisis. I think one of the merits of that chapter is you don't actually wade into those. This is not about, you know, city versus Fannie. I mean, it's not, a, it is about here are these specific institutions that got privileges that nobody else got, uh, just like the Banks of the United States. And so, um, interestingly, what Professor Wallace argues in his work is that you had all of these state-chartered institutions where the legislators were handing out charters. Uh, and what he saw is the really big change in about the 1840s and the 1850s was the creation of general corporation laws. So that anybody who wanted to start a bank, anybody who wanted to start a corporation, didn't have to bribe politicians. You just went down, filed the paperwork, and he argues that this is a really big change uh, in terms of reducing corruption in state government. And, and, and I think that there's some truth to that. So my point, the question to you is, you know, how much of this is driven by exclusive special charters and, and privileges, at least in the financial sector? Well, I think certainly the story of Fannie and Freddie is, um, you know, and, and I, I, I think that, uh, that they were given basically a rent and that, that they, that was enormously valuable. I, I think in 2001, CBO scored it around $10 billion was the value of it. And, and then there was a real bombshell that said that only two-thirds of it got returned back to uh, homeowners. The yeah, rest there were later Federal Reserve studies that said even less. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and so the and and this is the problem with 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 charters and and privileges, right? And this this is sort of 
that why Fannie and Freddie are at the end and why you know the bank the banks are at the beginning right is because they were given these special privileges but they were private institutions and what they were then able to do is take a portion of that bounty and plow it back into the political system to protect their rents this is why um, it, it's it, it's not as widely known as maybe it should be um, but because it was in a letter that Madison wrote because Matt, Madison and Jefferson were infuriated by the behavior of the first bank. I mean, Jefferson had it on reasonably good authority that it was bribing members of Congress. Madison knew, um, he, 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 was, he was in New York um, early on in the bank's days and, and was appalled by, by the scramble for, for federal paper. And he knew that poor farmers in the South and West were not, uh, were not on, the, on the inside of it. And, his, and, he, and he worried that these stockholders of the bank, he, he worried that they would become the Praetorian band of government, at once its tool and its tyrant, uh, bribed by its largesses and overwhelming it with its clamors, was his, was his quotation. And I think that is a perfect description of Fannie and Freddie. It was, um, I don't know if you mentioned this detail in the book, but one of my sort of favorite little tidbits about the Bank of the United States was, you know, during the congressional debates, one of its biggest defenders, uh, then Senator Daniel Webster, was actually its paid general counsel while a senator. That, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, that's an example of sort of where I, I, I sort of got a, a bit of grim humor writing this book because, of course, Daniel Webster has been remembered, and not wrongly, uh, he, uh, as, as the great defender of, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the union, right? But if there was somebody whose pocket he could put his hand into, that's, that's what he did. That, that, that's what he did. Maybe it's the last uh, quick question. What about solutions, Jay? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's a, I, I don't know how we could ever fully solve problems like, like log rolling, but are there institutional changes like a balanced budget amendment, like term limits that, that you would favor to, to try to tamp down some of these oh, problems? I, I would favor both of those. I mean, in terms of institutional changes, I would favor a whole host of them. I mean, the problem ultimately is that the amendment process has to go through Congress, and you're effectively asking Congress to reform itself. For what it's worth, I have a piece coming out in the Weekly Standard. It's, it's actually, um, it went live uh, overnight. Um, and then I have something coming out in National Affairs talking about next steps. And I try to frame it. It, it sometimes it, it comes off as a little small ball, um, and we can talk about bigger bigger reforms. But I wanted to frame it in sort of like what could we actually get done? So I sort of things like you know locking the revolving door, for instance, and and regulating not campaign not campaign finance and regulating speech, but regulating. Whom members can accept PAC money from? You know, if you are the chairman of a committee that oversees an agricultural interest, how are you taking contributions from Monsanto? If you were a judge and you did that, and they were before your court, you'd be kicked off the bench. So, th those are some of the suggestions that I have. They're smaller ball, but I, I wanted to write something that I didn't feel like was pie in the sky. Thanks very much. That was really excellent. I'm sure you agree with me. I was thinking that maybe our friends at home on C-SPAN might come in and hear the conversation and think, wow, sounds like a really interesting book, I, I, but I wonder what it is. And the title of the book is A Republic No More, The Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. Your author is Jay Cost, and you can obtain the book in the usual places online or at your, your local bookstore. Here, however, we're going to go to the question and answers part of our event. And what I would ask that, in the usual way is that people raise their hand, but then wait for the microphone. 
someone will bring you a microphone so everyone can hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation you have unless you wish to remain anonymous, uh, in which case you can. Otherwise, uh, let's start right down here in the front. And I'll point rudely at you. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Um, Unless you specify otherwise, we'll also assume your question's for Jay. Yes, you can. Uh, my question's for Jay, but I'd like to hear everybody's opinion. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I'm a Cato groupie. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, noticed the title has the word the republic in it. And this is a word that I've been looking at for three years, trying to get a handle on what the definition is of a republic. Now, of course, there's all these these common definitions that basically say, well, it's it's not it's not a, a monarchy. <laughs> um, and there there are other definitions that go all the way to say, no, it requires a constitution that you have to have individual rights. And I I'm just shocked by the range of definitions that I've found, and I'm also shocked by the fact that. Nobody seems to ever, when they talk about a republic, ever attempt to define it. I don't know if your book does, uh, but my, my, my experience has been that people use the word republic all the time and make no attempt to, to define it. So my question to you is, how would you define what a republic is? Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I think that um, one of the challenges is, is that a republic is not... A republic is almost the product of government. It's almost as if, in democracy, monarchy, whatever, that's sort of the process. And republic almost refers to the end result. So Montesquieu, for instance, thought that uh, the British system was the most perfect republic ever invented by human artifice. Uh, Hamilton, similarly. I mean, Hamilton is certainly within the republican spectrum and if you look at the, his proposal to the Constitutional Convention, you'll see it's very close to the British system. Because a republic, um, you know, but meanwhile though, you know, uh, Madison's first choice was, was not as close to a monarchy on the spectrum and the final product of the Constitutional Convention was, was very far off. And, and I think that the range of opinions, the diversity of opinion in the Constitutional Con Convention, those who signed the document, you know, so on the, on, the, on the most monarchical side would be Hamilton and those who, who also rejected the document, who refused to sign it. I would say that they all are in with the Republican spectrum because it's not about the process, per se. It's about the end result. And my understanding and the way I define it is, is that a republic is a, is a system of government, whatever the eventual design may be, that governs for the sake of the people as a whole rather than individual interests. And Madison specifies that a little bit. He adds a condition, calls it, he called it the Republican principle, which I think was pretty widely accepted, that ultimately majority rule has to play an essential role in the Republic somehow. Uh, but there, again, there were vast differences about what role it should play. It, you know, Hamilton saw most institutions of government completely and permanently separated from majority rule, and I would still say that he was a Republican with a small R. Maybe if I could try to summarize sure. that very shortly, what I, what I think Jay, Jay is getting at, well, put it in layman terms, is the intention is the Republic 
is a government that is aimed at trying to broadly serve the general interest rather than you know, the reflection of a monarch. Uh, and so to me, what I think the book is trying to reflect is that the reason we have a republic no more is this erosion of the general interest for you know, fractional or special interest. Um, let's go to another question. Gentleman right here on the aisle. Jim Snyder, uh, I. Solon. Uh, my question picks up on one of the themes that there are some positives to corruption. Uh, things often get done. The panelists have uh, you know, uh, raised that. But my question is maybe there are some areas where corruption is especially beneficial. Let's say in the development of infrastructure. So to pick up an example with railroads, between 1865 and 1950, America, 1915, America built 5,000 miles of, of rails a year, and we led the world in rails transportation, both in amount and equality. Since we regulated that and eliminated corruption from the system, Americans' rail system, you know, has become somewhat laughing stock of the world. Uh, uh, China built 10,000 miles during the last decade, far superior to anything we have ever built in, in our history. And so the question is, um, uh, Maybe there really are some positive elements. And I'll just give you one vivid example that's a contemporary issue, the future of um, the TV spectrum. We have decided we're going to give the broadcasters close to $100 billion in giveaways because that's the only way we know how to transition to getting them to provide, you know, repurposing it for cellular services. No other solution in our system other than just give it to them. And I think there are a lot of issues like that with infrastructure where it's just, it's really unfortunate, but that's the only way we can progress is with a pretty significant dose of corruption in that area. So let me. Well, I, I mean, I'm not gonna disagree with that in principle. Um, like I said, I, you know, the book is, you could read it as a criticism of Hamilton in some respects, um, but I, I am profoundly aware of his genius and, and at times found myself overwhelmed by it. Um, and so that's not, your point is not a point that I, I take lightly. Um, but I, I just want to make a comment though, the challenge, the challenge with the argument is talking about the railroads in the 19th century, is that was this the best way things could have been done? The railroads had a vice grip on the American farmer in the West to the point that where these traditional Republican voters embraced populism, the populist party, and the populist movement, which was a far left-wing movement. Now, I think as late as 1907, William Jennings Bryan says it's time for the state to control the railroads. Now, that is just antithetical to the foundation of our system. And yet, Bryan, in 1896, came shockingly close to becoming president of the United States. I mean, if it was not for the uptick in wheat prices, he very well could have won. Why? why? Why did the system almost produce probably the, the most radical president that it could have produced? And it was because of the atrocious condition of the American farmer. And generally, and I think that the, his, the American farmer's treatment at the hands of the railroads was a general condition 
whereby the nation's political economy, the political economic development of industrialization was grossly unfair to the American farmer, who, by the way, still by, I think, about 1880, constituted a majority of the workforce. A majority were farmers. So, you know, that sort of speaks to, uh, you know, the, the dangers. And even so, and, and I mention this because, you know, we can look in retrospect at this time and say, well, this was a good thing and this was a good thing. It was it was a good thing in the long run. If you were a farmer in western Kansas in 1887, it was an awful thing. Can I uh, jump in? I'll give you my quick thumbnail of railroads in the 19th century. Uh, most, most American railroads in the 19th century were not built with government subsidy. Most of them were private enterprise. I mean, I'm talking railroads in the east. There were thousands of miles built in the east without government subsidy. Uh, government started subsidizing railroads to the west, the Union Pacific, and, and that's when you started getting corruption. Jay talks about the Credit Mobile Air scandal as an, as an example of the corruption. My, my take is that, uh, you know, America would have been railroaded without any government subsidy. And indeed, there's a famous case of the, the Great Northern Railroad uh, built by an entrepreneur that, that went up uh, on the northern route uh, near the Canadian uh, border, completely unsubsidized, very successful. Uh, the railroads would have got built without any government subsidy. The railroads to the rest probably got built faster because of the subsidy. And, and as I said, there, there was a, I, I don't think it was necessarily ended up being a bad policy because the federal government had this massive amount of land. It had to get rid of it. It could get rid of it, uh, give it away to individuals or businesses like railroads. And that's maybe, you know, a, uh, a, a not a bad uh, result. I would have rather that result than if the federal government had retained all the land. Let me follow up on a, a related issue, which is, you know, economists, we often talk about things that are second best, you know, try to deal with other distortions. And so there's certainly lots of things where, for instance, there are constrained supply. Like certainly uh, lots of places around the world, if you want to pass a checkpoint into one country into another, you're going to have to pay a bribe. Um, it would be nice if you didn't have to pay that bribe. That would be the first best. But, but if the choice is you don't pass that checkpoint or that border, or you pay the bribe, that bribe facilitates transportation in that instance. Um, maybe more directly in the United States, uh, it's very difficult to build almost anything in many places in the United States. Lots of council members um, are bribed one way or another so that that shopping center, that apartment building could go up. First best world, those construction things get done and you don't have to bribe people. But if we don't live in that world and where uh, some government official controls the decision or not, the fact that that decision is at least for sale is probably better than a world where that decision is not going to be able allowed to happen at all. So I certainly see in some instances, this is not a generality, but in some instances where bribes are going to be the grease that gets something done, uh, offsets all sorts of other imperfections. And again, what we try to do at Cato is talk about those other imperfections that you should deal with in the first place. Now, let me let me just make one final point too: is that when you when you know in the in the book, I you know I'm I'm very sensitive to the degree in the book. Is that like for instance, the patronage system in the 1830s was corruption, uh, but it doesn't, in my judgment, come in for nearly as harsh a criticism as the patronage regime of the 1870s, for instance. So there are differences to, in degree. And in the 1830s, you can see, as I, I mentioned earlier, it was a way to hold political coalitions together, but it had devolved to the point where it became the purpose of politics itself by the time the regime finally collapsed with the assassination of James A. Garfield. And that, I think, is, and I try to hit, get to that with the five substantive chapters on domestic policy, is that here we have corruption that overwhelms 
whatever noble-spirited purposes exist behind the originating legislation. Gentlemen, three up and two over. Hi, Carl Golovin. Uh, I'm reminded of Frederick Bastiat's The Law, and he referred to plunder and how the law can be misused for, right. I think we've pretty much arrived at universal perfected plunder in our system. And it, it's all based on dishonest weights and measures in terms of a monetary unit and usury. And I want to ask you about Andrew Jackson, whether you explore the wonderful words of his farewell address from 1837, because he, he just articulated so clearly that the Constitution's system of gold and silver coin money was meant to protect the wealth of the laboring class from being inflated away by the largest corporations and politicians and financial interests, which just together would barter away control over the most precious aspects of life, like today, healthcare. So uh, did you explore Andrew Jackson's farewell address in your book? No, I, I did not. I mean, I have, I have a lengthy section on Andrew Jackson who comes in in general for fairly harsh treatment, um, deservedly so in my, in my estimation. Um, you know, when I, you know, this is the second book I've written, and, and I find that I have opinions about certain historical characters when I go into a book, and then when I come out, I, it's interesting to see how they changed. In my opinion of Jackson, it plummeted to about as low as any opinion can plummet, notwithstanding his views on the currency. The currency is an issue that I didn't, I, I elected not to, um, you know, I was very strategic in looking at the picking the issues, which is not to say the currency doesn't fit into the hypothesis. It was just that I, I had limited space and, and wanted to be uh, strategic in my selection so that the, the, the chapters could be grounded on what I, I view the five, especially in the latter half of the book, the five substantive chapters on farm subsidies, on the pork barrel, Medicare, financial regulations, and corporate taxes. I, I tried to find consensus views of the facts. And, and I felt like, uh, you know, regulation of the currency is something where there are such deep divisions between people on it that there wasn't common ground from which I could make an argument. Let me, so I, I think one benefit of the book, and again, this is both a sort of feature in the bug, is there are many issues in which the book just sort of gives you a taste of the issue. And again, the bank war is one of those. And to me, I find it one of the more fascinating episodes of American history. So I'd certainly encourage people to read it. And I'd also, you know, encourage uh, to me, uh, Jackson's veto message of the second bank is one of the most powerful <laughs> to me arguments against privilege. But then again, I, I see Jackson as very mixed, obviously, to me, uh, the, the trail of tears and his rejection of the Supreme Court's decision in that regard, also probably the worst, one of the worst episodes in American history. So um, he's quite a mixed bag. I will say, that to me, there are some discussions of the currency <coughs> issues in the book, not a lot. Um, to me, I do think some of the economics are a little off, but uh, if that's a topic you're going to pursue in the future, I certainly would encourage, and again, I would encourage people to do some own the research into that area in general. The woman on the aisle near the barrier. Hi, I'm Meredith McGeehee with the Campaign Legal Center. Uh, you touched just at the end there about solutions. Uh, and not surprisingly, while we may disagree on many other areas, this notion of the corruption that is inherent in special interests in Washington, notwithstanding Mitch McConnell's claim that there's really no such thing as special interests in Washington, <laughs> Uh, I'd be more interested in hearing you speak some more about the role that you think uh, money in politics plays in this cronyism, in the corruption, 
in the corporate welfare, however you want to characterize it. Um, some of us have uh, long believed, obviously, that not only it influences the outcome of elections, but it influences, obviously, along with lobbying and other things, exactly what happens, the policies that get made. So I'd like to hear you speak a little bit more about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and, you know, the end of the book is sort of a call for a bipartisan, cross-ideological coalition, um, where there, I think there are areas of agreement. Um, you know, I found myself agreeing a lot when I was writing, especially the last chapter, with Ralph Nader, who, who saw the problems of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac very early on and recognized it was a problem. And you can put him right next to you know, Peter Wallison. I mean, it's hard to find people who probably disagree on more things, but on that one, they do agree. And, and I don't think it's deniable that special interest money is a problem in politics. I think that it is, because of the limitations inherent to FECA or the Federal Elections Campaign Act, I think it has to be the small end of the wedge is what it is. And it is sort of the maybe a better metaphor to say it would be the foundation of what have become pervasive transactional relationships, whereby camp you have campaign contributions, you have statements of public support, lobbying and providing partial and fractious information uh, to legislators who face policy and political uncertainty in dealing with the questions they have to deal with. And then on top of that, you have the revolving door, which is basically a way to subsidize legislators who make relatively little money compared, I mean, if you think, you know, your average American would say, oh, come on, they make $200,000 a year. But if you compare their, them in terms of their social status, they're grossly underpaid, right? I mean, in, in market-based, I mean, there's only 435 of them. They should be able to negotiate a better wage in the private economy. Uh, but what happens is that, you know, they take that salary, but then they know when they leave office, they have a nice, you know, sinecure coming to them. So it's, it's and I, I deal with that in, because it's interesting to me because it's, it happened as a product of the progressive reforms during the first half of the 20th century did away with the old corrupt style of doing business, which was the party machine, which is why, you know, I get a lot of conservatives complain to me about the 17th Amendment, and oftentimes, depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I'll, I'll humor them, or maybe I will say, you don't understand how bad it was before the 17th Amendment was passed because it was a disaster. As a matter of fact, if you look at the cover of the book, the person at the top here is Nelson Aldrich, who, whom Lincoln Steffens called the head of it all. You know, the head of this vast alliance between corporate interests and the political barons that controlled the Senate and who in turn con controlled state governments. It's one reason why we never got any sort of sensible tariff reform until Will Woodrow Wilson became president, for better or worse on that. But on that case, on that front, for better. The point, though, is that this regime was undone, and then this current regime built, came up in its place. This, this current regime is relatively new. It's about 50, 60 years old, but it is, and, and it's, it's not as grubby as the old regime. The old regime was very grubby. There were these letters that were exposed. William Randolph Hearst found these letters. I think he, he found them in 1909, but he kept them in his pocket until 1912. These letters that executive from Standard Oil and these politicians, and the politicians would write, I need money. And the executive would write back, okay, no problem. And if you get a chance, could you please kill this reform commission that's percolating in the states? I mean, it was very salacious and very grubby. 
Nowadays, we don't have any of that. You know, everything is, is couched in a legalistic veneer. There's plausible deniability everywhere. I refer you to my, my counsel here. I don't recall that and blah, blah, blah. But the result is the same. And, what I, and, and, and the campaign finance system as it exists is, is the foundation of it. It's been at least a decade since the congressman was found with a freezer full of cash, right? right. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll to note that Aldridge is certainly you know, one of the fathers of the Federal Reserve System, I don't think by uh, coincidence. A uh, question I have, and, and this is one of the things I struggle with the book, because I do think at the end, part of the suggestion is this, uh, maybe what I'll characterize it as maybe a, a, a marriage between progressives and libertarians that break off from the separate parties. And you use the example uh, of Grover Cleveland as, right. as someone who's able to do that. At least uh, in theory. I mean, in, Cleveland in, in, was... Yeah. I mean, there's no, no president's been yeah. perfect. Uh, you know, he certainly he's better. talked a good game. Ex exactly. Um, to me, I think the tension, and, and again, someone who tries to build these coalitions on a regular basis, uh, it often comes down to where do you think the actual source of corruption is? Is this, you know, government, you know, take, you know, basically creating rents in which to extort uh, and then redistribute, or is this business, you know, corrupted and otherwise very well-meaning government? Um, you know, and again, it's probably a little bit of both, but I do think that maybe purposely you skip around that issue in the book. So I'm going to ask you, where is, which do you see as the predominant source of this? You know, it doesn't matter. I'm not sure that it matters for the sake of an alliance. I, I mean, it's sort of, you know, do you treat the under, underlying malady or can you treat the symptoms? I mean, we, we get a little relief from treating the symptoms, you know. Well, so I think it matters in the sense of, um, so to me, if we believe the problem is that government essentially creates pseudo-monopolies by restricted market and, and entry, um, then the answer is not, well, let's just regulate it more. The answer is... You know, let's not hand out special privileges. Right. Let's have competition. Let's have open markets. And again, I, I pointed out that that seemed to be the solution at the state level in the early 1800s. Well, yeah, that's that's you know, I, you know, when I, I wrote the book, you know, the book the book was meant as a diagnosis rather than a cure. And and so the final concluding section is just sort of a suggestion, or pointing toward a cure. And like I said, the the piece that I have coming out in the standard is just sort of stuff that I think is more saleable, you know? Um, and I say all that to say that I, I don't disagree with any, anything you said, but I, I just think as, as a practical, I want it to be practical, you know? Well, that's fair. So. Uh, I can't, excuse me, I can't help recall uh, on the question of money and politics, uh, the name of another book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, uh, which takes a slightly different view of these matters. <clears throat> I would also mention that uh, we should keep in mind that the people engaged in the practices documented in this book are going to be the ones who also write federal campaign finance yep. regulation. Uh, with that, on the aisle, three up, please. Thank you. Wait for the microphone, uh, please. Jay, I'm convinced to buy the book. Thank you. Uh, do public-private partnerships for building infrastructure produce factions that threaten Minnesotian and local governments? Well, I, I, I think the answer is yes. I think the, the short answer is yes. The long answer, I'll, I'll give an example of, you know, one of the, I, I mentioned in my previous question about how grubby the 19th century was. I, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I often found its grubbiness charming in, it, in a way. <laughs> 
and and these sort of devious sort of characters, I found them I found them sort of refreshing for their frankness, and and one of the more sort of over the and also for their over the top quality as well. I mean, there's just something to them that that you know, um, you know, I, I have this point in the in the preface where I talk about Matt Quay, who actually was born near where I live. He was born in Beaver, um, and you know, so he's hauled before a committee during the debate on the sugar tariff. Are you investing, are, are you speculating the sugar market? Yes, I am, and I'm gonna continue to do so, and there's nothing you can do about it, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Go to the classic, the archetype, the platonic ideal of, of that kind of character was Simon Cameron, who was the boss, the originator of the Pennsylvania political machine that dominated from basically the Civil War to the Great Depression, and this guy was such a, such a snake but he was so good at politics that Lincoln had hired him as his Secretary of Defense and shortly had to fire him because he was so over the top in his corruption. And yet it did not stop him. A decade later, he was in control of the entire state. And how did Simon Cameron manage such a feat? Because he was so wealthy. And why was he wealthy? Because he was a newspaper man in the 1830s in Pennsylvania. And of course, the newspapers in the 1830s were partisan. Well, of course, today's papers are partisan, too. They were just openly partisan. And when the pay, when and he was a Democrat in the 1830s, became a Republican, but when they started handing out charters for this and that, Simon Cameron transitioned very seamlessly from being a newspaper man to a businessman and made a vast fortune. Uh, and I, 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 you know, cite all of the various corporations that he was in charge of, and it's just ridiculous how many things he controlled. So yeah, the answer. So I mean, and Cameron is a, is a perfect illustration. Yes, that that you know, franchise granting is a pathway to corruption, and it's it was how a, a man as obviously crooked as Simon Cameron could nevertheless not only rule Pennsylvania politics but create a political machine that was only brought down by the Great Depression. So P3s are charters or franchises. Kid. Uh, I've written about the issue of infrastructure PPPs, and I'll, and I'll, I'll frame it. I'm in generally in favor. <clears throat> There's three ways you could build infrastructure. You could have it purely private. Uh, a lot of airports and seaports in Britain, for example, are private. Uh, you could have a wholly government, old-fashioned contracting. Uh, or you could, uh, and there's been a development over the last couple of decades to move to sort of a middle road for uh, building highways and some other things. So the Capitol Beltway in Washington, D.C. here was uh, widened in a PPP project. Uh, it, was, it was about a $2 billion project. A private company kicked in about three-quarters of that, I think, roughly, and then the, the, uh, Virginia kicked in the rest. So to widen the beltway in Virginia, either you could do old-fashioned contracting and the government would dish out $2 billion. You could do a PPP, which is sort of halfway privatization, where the private sector kicks in some and the government kicks in some, uh, you can get corruption in both of those ways. Before PPPs arose in recent decades, it was old-fashioned government contracting. There was often corruption, you know, and who, gets, who got the contract. So what PPPs are is a new way of doing government contracting where some of the risk is handed to the private sector. There's, there can be lots of problems in PPP contracts, but there can be lots of problems in, in old-fashioned government contracts as well. So it's not a pure black and white. I know it's, PPPs are interesting because there's a lot of folks on the left who are against them, but there's also a number of conservative groups who are against them too. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's a pure black and white kind of an answer. Or, or 
what's the risks on P3s to P3s? Where, where well, well, in the in the Capitol Beltway in Northern Virginia, the 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 P, the, the, the the partner, the private partnership, uh, took a lot of the risk. If if the revenues uh, from the traffic that they projected over the decades doesn't come through, they take a hit. They make more profits if they can maximize the flow on the highway and keep their the, the operating and maintenance costs down. No risk. Oh. No, that's not true. Yeah. Our book today has been A Republic No More, and I'd like to thank its author, Jay Koss, for coming here today. I'd also like to thank my colleagues, uh, Mark Calabria and Chris Edwards, who once again have reminded me that it's a good thing to have good colleagues. And I'd like to thank you all for coming. Uh, now we are going to go to lunch. The lunch will be held on the second level. You go up the staircase in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Just look for the yellow law, uh, excuse me, the yellow wall. And thank you very much. <laughs>